Uh, turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 15. We're going to look at the first uh, 35 verses of that this morning. And the title of today's message is The Gospel Plus Zero. Um, doing some spiritual algebra here, per se, uh, this morning. So if you guys are math whizzes, then this, this may just be for you. Um, if you're not, then it's not really going to be like math. So don't worry, you're going to be just fine. Um, but as you're turning there to Acts 15, I'm, I'm curious... Uh, by raising a hand, is anybody in here a Packers fan? We got one Packers fan. All right, solid. That's okay. That's all right. Now, Bears fans, a few, and the rest of you, maybe just not football or Vikings, Vikings fans. All right, so still, still some rivalry there, still some rivalry. That's good. You know, uh, there was a lot of... Uh, anxiety in our home when I was younger and we learned that my beloved mother is a Packers fan and we've, we believed the three of us boys for the longest time that she was just a Packers fan out of spite that she chose to be a Packers fan just because the rest of us were Bears fans um, and so there was that was a great Sunday when the Bears played the Packers man we it was awesome and my mom would go get she got you know bags game she got a, a Packers set. You know, we all love playing. She's like, oh, I'm going to get a Packers set. So here we are playing on a Packers set. I always, always tell her, Mom, listen, if that thing disappears, got nothing to do with it. My hands are clean. And uh, she still got it. She moved out to North Carolina now. But um, these rivalries, how about Cubs and Sox? Sox fans? Okay. A, few proud, a couple proud Sox fans. Very proud Sox fans. Just shooting that hand up there. Cubs fans? All right. Cardinals fans? No? Oh, no, really? Really? Oh, oh, man. So these rivalries, right? Okay, I love, I love rivalries. Rivalries in sports are an awesome, awesome thing, uh, in, in my opinion. Um, as somebody who played sports, a rivalry was great fun because it was something you look forward to, right? You get your schedule for the season, and what's the first thing you do? You look through the schedule, you find your rival, you circle that game, and that's the one you're going to win. If you're going to lose every game but one, that one game against your rival will be the one that you for sure are going to win. And now, playing sports, your rivalries are great because they kind of drive you. They give you some motivation. They, you really want to win, so you come prepared. You work hard. Uh, but when you're a fan, it's a completely different thing, right? We'll talk Cubs and Sox, Bears, Packers, Duke, North Carolina, uh, Michigan, Ohio State, whatever, Yankees, Boston Red Sox, whatever it is. These these major rivalries in sports, and we'll get all fired up about them. Sometimes, like, the point of violence, you guys ever seen, like, some violent protests going on with, with sports rivalries? And um, as a fan, it's just crazy to me, though, because we get so fired up about these rivalries and, and talk as if, you know, man, we've really got something to do about it. We brag on our teams, like, and we use the words like we, you know, and come on, we have nothing to do with the outcome of any game. We're sitting in our living rooms watching TV, and we're shouting, yeah, we're going to, you, you did nothing uh, besides tune in and, and give some, some views. But rivalries are, are a lot of fun, um, and there's a lot of value to them. Now, this morning, we're going to talk about this, uh, this sort of a, a rivalry that took place in Scripture and, you know, if you think about sports rivalries, you think about Cubs and Sox. Let's just talk that one for a second. Um, if, you, if you were to talk to a Cubs fan, now, I would be honest. I, I'm a Cubs fan, but I would not classify myself as a fan in the terms of, like, I know the stats. 
of every player. I know the rumor mill. I know I can compare this year's team to the team three years ago or four years ago or 15 years ago. I can't, I can't do any of that. I like the Cubs. If we get the channel that they're playing on, I may tune in for a little bit. I'd like to go to a game, but I'll be honest, I'm not like a diehard, right? But if you talk to diehard fans, they would tell you that it is impossible to be a Cubs fan and be a Sox fan. You can't do it, right? They say you're either one or the other. Why? Because you're like betraying, you're, you're becoming uh, partners with the enemy if you were to associate with both. And they're like, that is not okay. Listen, I had some friends when I was in college who were Michigan fans, and they literally hated Ohio State, hated them. Like, they would get angry when you'd bring up Ohio State. And, it, like, the rivalries are, are so deeply rooted, and there is no unity in those rivalries, right? It is almost hatred towards your, your rival opponents and their fan clubs. Well, this morning, our, our rivalry is a, a two groups of people that are arising in the, this early budding church, and they have two different messages. And these messages we're going to learn don't bring unity. The same as go Cubs and go Sox cannot work in the same sentence. These two gospels that are preached don't work together. And so we're going to look at Acts 15, verse 1 to 35, and um, it's a long passage, 35 verses, but I think we can handle this, and I think it's important that as we study God's Word, we go to the Word first, uh, and then uh, unpack it and and learn from it, but that we would uh, look at it as a whole before we break it down. So uh, look with me, we're going to read these 35 verses. If you need a timeout somewhere in there, just raise your hand, and I probably won't see it because I'm going to be looking down, but at least you can feel like you tried. Um, let's start in verse 1. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Well, the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test? by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take them from a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it's written, After this I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it. 
that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Well, then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders to the brothers, who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, though we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth, for it has seemed good that the Holy Spirit... uh, And to us, to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of his encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you just for your word. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you that you have welcomed into your people, the Gentiles, who we are. Thank you for the salvation that you have brought to us. Thank you for the opportunity to live and have a relationship with you. And Lord, I pray that now as we uh, unpack this passage just a little bit, Lord, that you would speak in a way that we would understand and apply to our lives uh, the truths that are in your word, that we would be encouraged uh, by the unity that the gospel may bring. God, that we would be challenged to defend the gospel and and what that message is and not to to back down on that. Lord, that we would be able to deliver that that uh, gospel boldly to the lost people around us and encourage each other as brothers and sisters with it. So we pray now in the coming minutes that you would be glorified uh, and you would be honored and lifted up among us. In your name we pray. Amen. I think it's important uh, before we jump in to, to realize if you were paying attention as we read through this passage, this wasn't a passage that was entirely a, a prescriptive uh, passage that says these, these are things that uh, we must be doing today, but it is a passage in which Luke, the writer, is chronicling the events that took place in this early church, and, and he tells of this, uh, this struggle, this uh, division that has come up, and this argument against the gospel message, an altered false gospel that has arisen, and, and how it is the true gospel is preserved and defended. And so it's important for us to not uh, look at it and say, well, let's, let's just take Uh, good life principles, but first to pause and recognize that uh, there's a story being told here, a story that is very impactful for us. If you were to rewind uh, a couple thousand years, this is where we would be, right? In this time where the gospel itself is being challenged. 
And the, the truth is that even today the gospel is challenged, right? So we are thankful that in this time there were uh, strong Christian men who stood upon the truth, who stood boldly for the gospel. And so I want to make sure that we remember that and honor that and keep that as our perspective, that this uh, passage itself wasn't just written to prescribe certain actions for us, but to detail actions that were taken that have brought us to where we are today. Now, that doesn't mean that we can't draw uh, application principles. You've got three points, really short points, in your outlines this morning, uh, and there's lots of space there for you to write more notes that you may want. But those three points are going to be three action takeaways that we can have based on the principles that would arise out of this, uh, this text. Now, the, the first one of these is that the gospel is to be defended. The gospel is to be defended. What has happened is that these men have come in preaching a false gospel and, and the breaks go on, right? And the devil is working very hard throughout each of our lives in this country and in the nations around the world to stop the advancement of the gospel because he knows, just as we do, that it is the power of God for salvation. So he'll do whatever it takes to stop it from going out, to stop it from being received. And so inevitably what he will do is he will use some external threats that, will help, that he hopes would stop the gospel. So uh, we're aware of these, right? We've got brothers and sisters around the world who are being persecuted for their faith. They're being imprisoned. Uh, they may be tortured. They may even be put to death for their faith in Jesus Christ. And these external factors uh, can be very discouraging to Christians, right? In, in the sense that it could stop us or our brothers and sisters who are facing it a little bit more firsthand than we are from boldly proclaim, uh, proclaiming the gospel message, right? They see uh, many churches around the world are no bigger than this one, likely, meeting in people's homes. And if uh, imagine if word had come that one of your brothers and sisters who were sitting in this room just this past week had been murdered uh, for their faith, dragged out in the streets and, and killed because of their faith in Jesus Christ. Imagine what effect that could have on the morale of, of a church, especially a church that's small and close-knit and everybody's uh, tight with each other. They know each other's families, their backgrounds. They do life together. That can be very difficult. So the devil would like to perhaps use those external threats to stop the advance, advancement of the gospel, to discourage Christians from being bold. But if you look throughout history, that has effect to, to a few. But history would show that the more persecution the irony is the, the more the church grows. So it's like almost saying bring on the persecution because uh, the gospel is going to advance all the more. What a, what a great opportunity. But I would almost argue that one of the greatest external threats uh, that called the devil has, has used against the church could be the legalization of the gospel. Right? We live in a country here uh, where the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ is allowed. We're not going to face, we're not worried at all this morning about uh, government officials rushing in here and dragging all of us off to prison and potentially putting us to death. I have no fear of somebody walking in the back door and putting a gun to my head for standing up here and, and preaching from God's word to you. We have great freedoms that are here, but yet the irony is with these freedoms, oftentimes in America, we have become the most lazy and most apathetic preachers of God's word there ever is because we don't feel the pressure. The foot is not on the gas. The weight of persecution isn't around us. And in a time of peace, we don't have the vigor that comes with a time of war. And so 
perhaps what has stopped the gospel message from spreading so rapidly is that we don't feel the urgency and the, and the power behind it because we've become blinded by the ease of going through life, going through the motions, coming to church, and talking boldly about Jesus in our small groups or Bible studies. And yet, uh, for whatever reason, we don't see the need as often to go out into the lost world and still proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have an opportunity and a privilege that is before us here that our brothers and sisters around the world may covet. I, can't, I couldn't find a, the source on this, but just this last, in the last couple of weeks, um, I had seen an email, I think if any of you, Pastor Keith had sent it out or something, about uh, some uh, pastors and church leaders in China as they're praying you know, through this persecution that they continue to go through and stuff, that they would pray that they would not become like the Church of America because they're afraid that if the Church of America faced the same persecution that they did, that we wouldn't make it that our church here in America would crumble. Now, I don't know if that's all true. I think the church would do just fine, right? Because it's not dependent on us. It's dependent on God. But we have a freedom here to preach the gospel, and we need to take that seriously. But despite all of the external, outside uh, threats that the devil may use to uh, cripple the, the advancement of the gospel, he uses internal as well. Right, the whole divide and conquer, the, that whole mindset of breaking down a whole unit into smaller units that are more easy and manageable uh, to conquer them. Right, if you can, in in the ancient days, if you were in battle, you could split off. If you could cut off the armies, even today they they uh, operate under this. If you could cut off an army, they are much more easy to defeat. Well. Wouldn't it be the same in the church? If the devil could get a foothold inside the church and cause a, a divide to come between those believers who might be there, wouldn't that be a great opportunity to stop the gospel message from advancing? And he'll do it with, with lots of things, right? It's great if we can uh, get divided over things like carpet or wall colors and stuff like that. Silly things that we, you're like, yeah, that's really dumb. Well, it happens, right? Churches split over the dumbest things. Now, i got to imagine the devil's just sitting there like, yes, I didn't even have to bring out the big guns because I got them on the paint color. But when that doesn't work, perhaps he'll turn to something greater. How about doctrine? That's what we see today, right? If I could get the Christians to argue over what they really believe, maybe they'll stop preaching about Jesus. Or maybe their words would become ineffective to those who are watching and listening from the outside. The gospel needs to, to be defended at all costs. There are primary and secondary areas of doctrine within the church, right? Primary areas of doctrine or what we believe would be things that you hold with a closed fist. Things like Jesus is the Son of God, God existing in, in Trinitarian form, uh, the gospel is uh, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. These things you hold with a closed fist. You don't let go of those things. Just, those are just a, a couple examples. Things that may be an, an open-handed or a secondary issue, the, the methods and you know, the timing of baptism, some of that, as long as it's not for the sake of salvation. Right? There are some denominations out there that would say you have to be baptized in order to be saved. Well, that, that's a salvation issue. That's closed fist. Or the uh, ceasing or continuing of sign gifts like prophecy and uh, healing and speaking in tongues. Well, that's a secondary issue. 
Someone can believe that those things are continued and someone can believe that they're not and we could both be united through the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? But what we're seeing today is a, a direct threat to the gospel message of salvation. And that's not one of those things you can hold with an open hand because what you're dealing with is, is something that is a poisoned truth, something that may sound true, right? They didn't, uh, these Jews didn't come in and say, listen, forget this whole Jesus thing. They're like, no, Jesus is fine. But in addition to Jesus, you need to obey the law. In addition to Jesus, you need to be circumcised, right? They'll take the truth and distort it just enough that it's actually poison. And the devil is very good at deceiving. He's very good at deceiving. So we need to know what it is that we believe. We need to know what it is that uh, we are holding with a closed fist. And we need to know why we believe it to be true. We need to know why. But there's points of unity. You know, we talk about the secondary things, and, and that's where we can become unified as a church. We can stand together, even though we may have some differences. And that's what I, what I believe, and what many scholars believe is going on when you look in uh, verse 20, and it says, and James is saying, but uh, we should write to them to abstain from the following things, things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality, from what's been strangled and from blood. Many scholars believe that that's a, a, a call for unity, right? He says, listen, the law of Moses has been preached in cities all over the place. There's lots of Jews out there. So for the sake of unity in the church, perhaps we could at least abstain from these things to find unity with our Jewish brothers and sisters who place their trust in Jesus. So we as believers can do the same. We need to be able to look past some of our minor differences. We need to break down the walls that may cause divide within the church. And we need to break down the walls that may cause divide out in the world. So that more and more people could come to know Jesus Christ. In 1994, there was a group of evangelical church leaders and a group of Catholic church leaders that got together and they saw this problem that there was no unity between the evangelical church and the Catholic church. And I said, well, we're all working for Christ here. And at the time, they were the two fastest growing denominations, if you will, of the, the church. And they said, listen, we got to get away with this uh, division that we've got going between us. So they wrote up this whole document that they call the evangelicals and Catholics together. And there was a whole number of these leaders who signed this document. And here's, here's what it says early in this document. Beyond that, we are called, and we are therefore resolved to explore patterns of working and witnessing together in order to advance the one mission of Christ. Our common resolve is not based merely on a desire for harmony. We reject any appearance of harmony that is purchased at the price of truth. That sounds good, right? Sounds like something we would be a-okay with. We want to be unified in truth, working together with brothers and sisters for the sake of Christ, for the gospel to advance. Awesome stuff. Now, the problem is, in the canons and decrees of Trent, which the Catholic Church still to this day would hold to as their doctrinal beliefs, there's a few problems that we would have. It says in here, if anyone should say that by faith alone the impious is justified in such wise as to mean that nothing else is required to cooperate in order to the obtaining of the grace of justification, let him be anathema or hated and accursed. 
It says, if anyone should say that the man who's justified and however perfect, however so perfect, is not bound to observe the commandments of God and of the church, but only to believe, as if indeed the gospel were a bare and absolute promise of eternal life, without the condition of observing the commandments, let them be anathema. It says, if anyone should say that the justice received is not preserved and also increased before God through good works, but that the said works are merely the fruits and signs of justification obtained, but not the cause of the increase thereof, let him be anathema, hated and accursed. So, needless to say, the document sounds like a really great thing. But the Catholic Church, at least in, at least in their doctrine, perhaps the, the average uh, attender would not know these things or not hold as firmly. I, I'm not going to speak for every single person. But the Catholic Church, in their doctrines, would believe that justification and salvation are not by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. They would believe that Christ is part of it. They would believe and agree with us that he is a central focus, but they would also add, you need to have good works. Your good works help to bring your salvation. Just if faith and works partner together for your justification before God. Now, we, we don't hold to that gospel. That's not the gospel of grace in Jesus Christ. So the document sounds great, but how can we have unity for the sake of the gospel advancing throughout the world if the gospels that we preach are different. One saying you need to have works with your faith and one saying it's only by the grace of Jesus Christ. Isn't that the very problem that's happening right here in the Jerusalem Council? Works are needed. Faith's great, but be circumcised. Faith's great, but follow the law of Moses. No, it's only by grace. It's only by grace. John Calvin once said, the name of peace is indeed plausible and sweet, but cursed is that peace which is purchased with so great loss that we suffer the doctrine of Christ to perish, by which alone we grow together into godly and holy unity. We need to defend the gospel message because if people hear the false gospel, they are still on a one-track path to hell. A gospel of grace in Jesus Christ, that there's nothing that you can do to save yourself. That's the gospel that they need. But before we defend it, it must be delineated. The gospel must be delineated. Picture this scenario with me. You're having a game night at your home. And you invite a, a couple other families over, and uh, you're going to play this game. We'll call it Monopoly, just because that's one that I'm sure most of you have at least heard of. Now, I know most of you probably hate it, but at least you've heard of it. Okay? You're going to play Monopoly. Now, let's say you've got uh, two couples that have come over for game night. You have couple A and you have couple B. Okay? And you're sitting down, and couple A has played Monopoly before. Great, awesome. Couple B has never played. They've got no idea what the rules are, how to play the game. And so you as a good host say, well, let me explain the rules. Let me explain how you play the game. So 
you start to break down the rules, you explain the process about how which things go, and as you're explaining the rules, couple A, who's played the game before, says, wait a minute, that's not the rule. You don't get $400 when you land on go. You don't, you don't put fees into free parking. What are you talking about? And you start to realize, well, there's some difference here. We've both played the game before, but we play by different rules. And either you or couple A have some house rules that they play by and some house rules that perhaps they have come to believe as the official rules of the game of Monopoly. And so you start to have a Shabana council of your own and you're, you're debating between you and, and couple A what the real rules are. You may call up a friend and say, hey, th don't we play like this? Oh, yeah, yeah, we do. See, they said... And you start going back and forth with couple A. You, you know, you pull out the official rule book. You're looking at what's, what the real rules are, and you're starting to point fingers and, and judge. And then meanwhile, as you're working through all this, you look over and you see couple B, and they're just sitting there like... <laughs> and they're lost. They're more confused now than when you started, when they didn't know the rules, because now they're sitting there saying, who do I believe? What are the rules? You guys don't even know the rules? How are we going to play this game? And you still continue because, you know, you got this pride thing and you got to be right. So you keep fighting the rules with couple A. And the more you go, couple B becomes more and more disinterested in even playing the game. And you know what? Perhaps even at some point, they get up and say, you know what? This whole fun night has kind of just taken a real bad turn for the worse. I'm out of here. And they go home. That's extreme, but maybe it happens. Can't the same thing happen with the gospel? You're preaching for Jesus Christ, you're sharing the gospel message, and, and person A is preaching a gospel of uh, faith in Jesus, salvation through grace. There's no works, no work can save you. Couple B says, yeah, you know what, grace is good, faith is good, but you need a little bit of good works before you're really saved. And suddenly the watching world is saying, wait a minute, you Christians don't even know what you believe. And now the, the message of the gospel is at least weakened because of the testimony between believers who cannot agree on, on what their faith is. That's what's happened. We have a Jerusalem council. You notice uh, up to this point they've been on a missionary journey, Paul and uh, Barnabas had, and they're, they're out preaching about Jesus Christ, winning Gentiles to faith all over the place, founding new churches, and all of a sudden this disagreement shows up. And now what? Pause. we got to get this thing figured out. It's an important deal, right? We've got two Gospels being preached. We need to figure out what the truth is. And they're not uh, looking at this as, hey, you know what? Well, that's great. You guys can play by your house rules, and we'll play by ours, but when you're in my house, we play by my rule. They're like, this is, a, this is a real deal. We've got to get down to the truth. We've got to figure it out. We have to come to unity. And so Peter speaks in, in some of these first verses about what the gospel is. But before we start to break down what the gospel is, as Peter is preaching it or, or sharing it at the Jerusalem Council, I want to uh, back up and, and define something generally, right? Gospel. What does the word gospel mean? The good news, right? The good news. Now, we can, 
what we try to do when we are sharing our faith is summarize the gospel message into a, a conversation. But this, brothers and sisters, is the gospel, is it not? This whole book is the good news. God created the world and is the owner and sovereign over all of it. And humanity has sinned and divided a relationship with God and we can't fix it. And God chooses a a people to build into a nation to be his people through which he's going to bring a Messiah to save humanity. Which, by the way, is promised all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. And then there's stories and stories and stories of how God is working throughout history to bring about that redemption, to restore that relationship. And then Jesus comes, right? And Jesus has lived a perfect life. He has walked on this earth. He's been preaching and teaching and ministering to people. And he sacrifices his life on the cross. He dies. And on the third day is risen from the dead. He defeated sin and death. The power of sin and death. Jesus rose from the dead. that anyone who would believe could have life. Could have life. And then now here we are after that. We're, we're in this church age now where we're continuing to reach out with the gospel. But the saddest thing is that so often we become so inwardly focused that we focus just on the church and meeting each other's needs, which is all great, but we become so consumed with that at times that we fail to reach out. All, we're, we're hugging instead of reaching. We need to hug. I'm not a big hugger, so it's weird to say that. But we need to hug each other as Christians. We need to care for each other, but we need to reach out as well. So this being the gospel message, well, there's a lot here. You, could, you spend your whole lifetime learning about this. As uh, Pastor Phil said, you know, every time you read it, you'll learn something new. You could read the same stories you learned when you were in Sunday school and you'll, God will reveal something new to you that you didn't understand before. And that's the beauty of Scripture. So how in the world do you summarize the gospel message in a way that you could have it in a conversation with somebody? That's tough. Well, Peter, Peter here, is, he hits on a few things. And let's break it down as he does. Firstly, salvation is through faith. Salvation is through faith. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Peter uh, speaks very clearly that it's through the faith of the Gentiles that they found cleansing of their sins from God. There was no addition to it, no good work that they had to do, no uh, part B. It wasn't that um, faith was the key that started the ignition of the justification or salvation process. It was just part one, then you had to do steps three, four, five, ten, anything down the road. No, it says it's through their faith. Their faith alone. Salvation is through faith. Circumcision wouldn't do it. And the Jews, man, they got, they got really hung up on the circumcision thing, and it's hard to blame them, right? If you look back in Genesis chapter 17, God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. It shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. So shall my covenant be in your flesh and everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. But the important word in there is, it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. 
or they become so consumed on the idea of the sign of this covenant that it becomes the very covenant itself, and they hold it so tight that, it, I mean, you've been following through Acts, right? Every single time there's disagreement between the Jews and the Gentiles, it seems to come back to this idea of, of circumcision and being identified physically through, as a, a member of God's people, his nation. But they're missing it because the circumcision that, that God's truly concerned with is not the circumcision of the flesh, but it's the circumcision of the heart. Even back in Deuteronomy chapter 30, God speaks of the circumcision of the heart being the issue at hand. Paul, later in Romans chapter 2, would speak of the same thing. He says, For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So, if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Well, then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. And here it is. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. The circumcision of the heart. It's always been a heart issue, right? It's not been a a law issue. The law was never given as a means to bring salvation. The law, as uh, we learn in Galatians, was given as a a tutor to Christ, to show the need for a Savior, to point us to God. But yet we can become so hung up on it. So it's always a heart issue. So no, in response to our Catholic friends, justification is not a partnership of faith and works. It is a gift as a result of faith in Christ, a gift of His grace. And the good works that we are able to do now are, in fact, fruit of that new life in Christ. Not anything that we deserve more of God's grace for. God has given us his grace in full in the person of Jesus Christ. Secondly, Peter says that salvation is an act of God's grace. Grace is something that's undeserved. The second that there is any addition to it, any action required, it's no longer grace. Now it's a, a wage. It's what is due, right? Romans uh, chapter 4, verse 4 says, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. So if we were to add any work to faith, to grace, no longer would we be saved by God's grace, but by his duty to reward us with whatever good work that we would have done. So if salvation truly is by grace, it has to be something that is totally and completely unmerited by you and I and anybody who would place their trust in Jesus Christ. Not as something that we've done. The sign of the covenant with the people, circumcision was a sign of the covenant with God, not the very covenant itself. See, salvation is a gift from God that no one deserves um, and I, I got to be honest, I think there are times that we heap the law. We preach a gospel of grace, but we heap the law on each other. We heap the law on unbelievers. With our words, we may say the right thing, but with our attitudes and our actions, we may speak a very different thing. Something that's completely not true. How could God have 
allow sinners to go to hell? How could God, who is loving, let that kind of thing happen? Well, we ask the wrong question. How could a just and holy God love us so much that he would sacrifice himself to give us life? There's the question. If you want to talk what's unfair, that's what's unfair. Salvation is totally unmerited gift from God, an absolute act of grace. And lastly, he says it's found in Jesus Christ, in Jesus Christ alone. No work of the flesh can save you. In James chapter 2, to my own paraphrase of it, it says, great, if you, want to, uh, if you want to follow the law, you could do it all perfectly. You could follow the entire law perfectly, but if you stumbled in even the smallest little point of it, you've become guilty of breaking the entire thing. So, no, the law is not there to save. Earlier in Acts, we've learned that salvation is found in no other name than Jesus Christ, no other person than Jesus Christ. There's no other name given among, under heaven by which men must be saved. Salvation is in Jesus alone. Now, these things to us probably sound very, yeah, I get it. I've heard that a hundred times. I understand it. Jeremy, you're not telling me anything new right now. This is stuff that I know. Well, it's important that we delineate the gospel so that when we do, we have the opportunity to share it. We know what we're to share. We know the message to share with those who are lost. But even Pastor Stephen Cole said once, and I think we all can relate to this in some way, he said, you may have been raised in the church as I was. You may have devoted your whole life to service in the church. You could even serve as a missionary and suffer greatly for your religious work. But none of it weights the scale of heaven even a little bit in your favor. The pagan murderer on death row is just as close to salvation as you are. In fact, he may be closer because he's more likely to see his need for God's grace than the religious person who takes pride in his good deeds. The Bible says that we have all sinned and fall short of God's glory. Thus, we all need to be justified as a gift by God's grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. It can be easy for us as believers to become distracted from the grace that God has given and put so much weight in the, the good things that we do, all that we serve in, how much we give to the church, how many times we share the gospel. And the list could go on and on. But that doesn't help at all. It is only salvation through Christ. And we need to remember that as believers, that we will be encouraged and built up through the grace of Jesus, not by what we're doing. We need to not heap the law on each other. And I think this happens so often in the church. We'll, we'll maybe perhaps preach a gospel of grace, but then some, as soon as somebody turns their life to Christ, well, now it's like the judgment seat. This brand new baby Christian, they start entering the church, and we get this mindset sometimes as Christians that we don't naturally, I mean, we don't think to adopt it, but we just do adopt it, that hey, you're a Christian, you should never sin anymore. And obviously we know that, I'm a sinner. I'm still in need of God's grace. I'm still a work in progress. But yet, we'll look at other people and be like, how filthy. How could you act like that? How could you struggle with that sin? And we start to heap the burden of the law upon each other as Christians. 
But what has happened in our passage is that they've, taken the, they've come to unity in the law of Jesus or the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they go and they deliver the gospel. That's our last point. The gospel is to be delivered. And they take that gospel message and instead of heaping more and more weight upon believers or upon the church, they say, listen, it's through Christ. We're not going to heap any extra. You don't have to do anything else to be saved. And so they take this letter and they send these people back to the church. To the church. And what does it say? I got to find it. Um, And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. They rejoiced because of its encouragement. I think it's healthy for us to stop and ponder for a second the gospel that we continue to preach throughout our church. Do we preach a gospel of, of God's grace and truly encouraging and supporting each other towards righteousness, spurring each other on to good deeds, or do we uh, do more of like the, the shackling and say, come on, you got to do better than that. You're a, you're a Christian for crying out loud. I've had coaches in my life that that was their approach to coaching a team, and that's tough. It may work for a season, but man, that's discouraging in the long haul. When every time you turn around, you're getting reamed on and said, you're, you're not doing good enough, and you gotta, you got to fix it and pull it up. Well, as Christians, aren't we to care for and support each other? What would the church look like? Not just the Shabana campus, not just Village Bible Church, but I mean like the church, capital C, globally, if we were to encourage each other, lift each other up, spur each other on to righteousness, instead of saying, hey, listen, we gotta, we got to obey God, we got to do all these righteous things, we got to do all these good works because, well, I ha- we have to because we're Christians. We're expected to. That's an exhausting thing. That's heaping the law on each other. But we need to encourage in the sense that, hey, we get to obey. We get to honor God. We're going to stumble We're going to fall every single day. We're going to sin. But seeing the privilege and opportunity that it is to walk with Jesus Christ, to honor him, to have a relationship with him, that we get to live in freedom from our sins. We get the opportunity to be righteous and to live in righteousness. What a great opportunity that we have. And so my challenge for us today is that this week, this week, we would each share the gospel. Share the gospel with somebody. That's challenge number one. The opportunities are there. I don't want to sit around and just wait for that, like, shining moment where God beams this light down from heaven and just with this deep and godly voice says, now is the time to share the gospel with them. Right? We wait for those moments. But you know, you know the moments that you've had to share the gospel. Those times when you're talking with someone and God just puts it on your heart, like, you should say something. And then we get all fearful and like, eh, I don't know. I don't know if it's the right time. What if they're going to ask me something? What if this, goes, this conversation goes so far that I don't really want it to go? What if this turns into a really long conversation? Man, I just don't have time for that right now. 
I've got an appointment in three hours. And I've got to do 14 things before I go. You know. You know it. The opportunities that God puts before us to share that we just move past. We let slip by. We don't take the advantage of. But I want to challenge each of us to take that stand in those moments. But take a leap of faith. Talk to somebody about Jesus. And I want to challenge you to evaluate the way that you view your relationship with Jesus. Is it a relationship that's of joy and freedom and hope? Or is your relationship with Jesus one where you feel burdened and bogged down and restricted? That's going to change dramatically the way that you communicate with other people. I there are some people that I know who are really great at sharing their faith, and I've found that one of the most common things about them is they find so much joy in having a relationship with Jesus, so much freedom in being a follower of Jesus Christ, that, man, they just want to tell people. But not as a, I have to tell people. I have to. Because that's what I have to do as a Christian. Man, I have experienced this greatness. I, I want to share it with somebody else. So that's challenge one. Challenge two, be an encouragement. Be an encouragement to some other believer this week. Go out of your way to find somebody who would just need a word of encouragement. Send them something in the mail. I know we're moving past like the snail mail days, right? It's all about email, but come on. Isn't it so great when you get a handwritten note in the mail? You're like, wow, somebody took the time to think through this and actually write it. You know, that cramping that you get in your hand when you write? They went through that for me? Wow. Call someone up you haven't talked to in a while. See how they're doing. Pray with them. Maybe invite someone over for dinner and just say, hey, we just wanted to hang out and be a blessing to you. I don't know what it is, but encourage another believer this week. Go out of your way to make it happen, that you could show God's love to them and care for them in these next few days. But never budge on the gospel message. Remember, the title of the message today is The Gospel Plus Zero. Find joy in, in the salvation that God has given you and the freedom that he's given.